so, we're going to take the commitments and we're going to take them once a week over the course of the next 10 weeks and perhaps even past that. And we're going to have different individuals come up and share the answers to two questions. Uh, we're going to think about God sees me this morning. And, uh, and uh, Brian King is going to come up and he's going to talk about what it means to him and what it means that God sees him and what it means to him. Come on up, Brian. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> um, I just want to make a, a, a funny comment. You know, we always say the the weather it's springtime, right? It feels like spring, but we always say it's it's we're just waiting for second winter. You know, and then it's summer after that. So, <laughs> so take advantage of it while you can. Um, but yeah, today I'm speaking about um, the first commitment, which is God sees me. Um, and when I first think of this commitment, I'm reminded of that verse in Jeremiah um, that revealed that God knew me before I was even formed in my mother's womb. Have you ever met one of those people that remembers everybody's name? It feels very personal. Or have you ever met someone who can meet a person in one conversation, connect the dots between that person and someone else they know, and the next thing you know, they're great friends. <laughs> Maybe you're one of those people. I am super jealous of those talents because I'm in sales and it is a big advantage that I don't have. Sometimes I think the reason I can't recall like that is because I'm too selfish or too much of an internal thinker and too busy analyzing. But I'm starting to think that maybe we all have little bits of God's talents and people who are good at recalling and connecting are just like God. Not only does God remember my name, but after a long absence, or after a long absence, but he can connect the dots between everything I've touched, everywhere I've gone, and everything I've said. And that's amazing to me. When I think about God sees me, I also think about God hovering up there in heaven, watching all of my behaviors, good and bad, and my good and bad thoughts. Yikes. <laughs> good and bad to me, at least. In the past, it would cause me to stiffen up, almost like saying, oh crap, there's the teacher, stop doing what you're doing before they see. <laughs> In contrast, today, I can imagine God seeing me, and it causes me to smile and say, hey dad, sorry for not talking to you in so long. Thank you for all the blessings in my life at this moment. The reason why I say at this moment is because I used to think blessings were a sign of living the Christian life right. Right. I have great children. I was married for umpteen years. I was in Christian leadership roles, had my friendships, or had many friendships, uh, was able to afford a few nice things. Everything was pretty stable, and I was relatively happy. Blessings were almost like a paycheck, or perhaps just evidence that I could see. But then things began to crack and fall apart. My marriage ended, some friendships ended, income was split, Christian leadership roles ended, stability ended, and happiness ended. I remember crying to God not to let this happen. I really didn't understand why he would. Then, that was my biggest question for God, why? And at the time... And throughout, I don't ever remember him answering that question. I did learn during that time to gaze more at God, not blessings. 
You've all heard the saying, time heals all wounds, and perhaps that is true, but during that period of pain for me, realizing and everything, realizing and eventually believing God saw me made all the difference. And while he saw me, he didn't blame me, and he didn't not like me, and he wasn't punishing me, but rather he showed me his character. He connected the dots of my struggles and hope. He showed me that he sees me. He remembers my name, and it was personal, or is personal for him. Thanks, Brian. As you're looking, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, of the fruit, we're talking about self-control. Self-control was the one most valued by the Greco-Roman culture that Paul lived in. Self-control was one of the four cardinal virtues, along with courage, justice, and wisdom. So in terms of the fruit, this was the one when they talked about self-control, that the people that would have lived at that time said, yeah, self-control is really important. Randy talked about it. And it's really one that we zero in on. It was, for them, part of being truly human to moderate one's desires. Um, when we think of self-control, it's having power over oneself. It's the ability to moderate one's desires. We all have things that we want. Uh, we want to do, we want to have, things we want to think, things we want to feel. And we don't always have the opportunity to be able to gratify those desires. Self-control is the ability to moderate those desires. Uh, it's reflected in perseverance, steadfastness, and restraint. Verse from Proverbs that kind of captures it. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. And that's when we think of self-control. Somebody who kind of can direct his spirit is not just reactive to things, so something happens and there's a reaction, but a person who learns to evidence self-control not only reacts, but responds to things. They kind of have, you might think of an emotional clutch that they're able to engage a clutch and consider how to respond to a situation rather than a knee-jerk reaction to it. Surprisingly, when we think of how important self-control was to the culture at the time, the Bible de-emphasizes it. We only find self-control, the word really just three times in the Old Testament and seven times in the New. It's not very frequent. The Bible doesn't place a, a large focus on self-control. Living our life in the way God desires is never firmly at our disposal. Maybe that's why self-control is not something the Bible focuses on, because it would appear, again, with the fruit of the Spirit, 
self-control is really the byproduct of spirit influence. Again, these fruit are the fruit of the spirit. They're not the fruit of the self. They're not something we can influence ourselves to do. There's a process we go through, and that's certainly the tr- true with self-control. It's the byproduct of the influence of God's spirit. Peter describes the root of self-control. He has a passage that sounds a lot like Paul's list in the fruit of the Spirit, but it says, for this very reason, he writes, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge, here's our word, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. There's lots of overlap between Paul's and Peter's list, but it really is kind of interesting. If we were to approach somebody in the culture at the time, self-control would be at the top of the list probably, along with the other cardinal virtues. And Peter puts him in the middle, and Paul, they end up being at the end of the list. At any rate, Peter describes the root of self-control. And for him, self-control is on the pathway to righteousness. For Paul, it is one of the fruit of the Spirit. But either way, um, how do we go about developing self-control? Peter has two things for us that help us to try to figure out how can we come to a place where we can moderate our desires? where we can engage an emotional clutch and make a decision about what we're going to do or say in a, in a time. It's not something that, that we can grow quickly. And that's really the deal with fruit, isn't it? Fruit don't just pop on the end of the tree like popcorn. You know, the fruit is gradually, it develops over time. That's certainly the case with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, when we think of the root of self-control. I think scripture in Peter in this passage is going to lead us in two directions. He's going to talk about God's glory and God's promises. And we're going to have to look at both of those things for in order to develop self-control. Interestingly, we don't focus on ourself. We focus on God's glory and God's promises. And as we do so, we will find that focus increasing our ability to moderate our desires. Uh, Peter writes, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I want you to notice it says God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Again, that's that's kind of a, a very bold statement. God gives us everything we need through his own glory and goodness. Um, everything we need to arrive at godliness is provided. We're not just told that it's provided, we're told how it's challenged, how it's channeled, and how we experienced it. This is important. It's frustrating. It would be very frustrating to have a powerful device and not know how to turn it on. 
You know, so if you have this thing with all kinds of power, but you don't know how to flip the switch or you don't know how to engage it, it's not very helpful. So we can get, we can, God can have all kinds of power, but if we can't access this power, it's not very helpful. And that's why Peter goes to talk about what it is that we can do in order to access this power. Peter focuses on God's glory and goodness. Let's think about that just a little bit. There's a passage, I think Peter's thinking when we talk about glory, about Moses' experience. And what it reads in Exodus 33, 18 through 20, Moses is talking to God and says, now show me your glory. A couple things about glory. Glory is the byproduct of God's self-disclosure. If you liken God to the sun, and think of the way the sun sends out rays that end up interfacing, engaging with us. You might liken God's glory to the rays of the sun, but what God discloses is himself. And that's what glory is, God disclosing himself to an individual, shining aspects of his thoughts and and desires to individuals. And the second thing about glory, it's not just God's self-disclosure. The nature of divine glory, it changes the person upon whom it shines. I'm not saying it might. I'm not saying it could. It does. That's the deal with God's glory, that it changes the person upon whom it shines. So if you understand God's glory and how he shines it towards you, if you make room to think about and to meditate on, and I'm using my words carefully, it will change you. I'm not saying it might. I'm not saying it could. God created us so that as we make room for seeing and understanding what he is disclosing about himself, that knowledge slowly starts to change us. It really does. It's not fast, but it starts to change us. And we start to see the fruit of the things that Paul and Peter talk about starting to be developed in our life. Um, Moses says, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. God didn't reveal his face to Moses on Mount Sinai. God would reveal his face at a subsequent time. And you know what I'm thinking about, right? God shone his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know what God is like? Do you know what you want to know what God's face is like? It's Jesus. Jesus is the facial reflection of what God is like. God reveals his glory 
He revealed his glory from Mount Sinai. We can understand some things about God, but God revealed his face most clearly through Jesus Christ. So we might think of it this way, that the difference between an analog and a digital signal. You know, if you've got analog TV, you can't really get many stations anymore, but the picture's not as clear as a digital picture. Jesus is like a digital image of God. It's a clearer image of God. And so if we want to know what God's like, we have to think about what was Jesus like? If you want to know what what pleases God, you think about what pleased Jesus, because Jesus clearly reflects that to us. Um, God caused his glory and goodness to pass in front of Moses. So what point is Peter making that God, his divine power, has given us everything we need through his own glory and goodness. I think the point that Peter is making is this. You don't exercise self-control in order to get to know God. That's the way we tend to orient ourselves. You don't focus on developing self-control, thinking that if we can change ourselves, if we can control ourselves, then we'll come to get to know God. That's upside down. What Moses did, he didn't, in fact, you know what happened when Moses went up on the mountain? He went up on the mountain, looked at God, and he came down, and he didn't even know that his face was shining. That's the deal with transformation. When you make room to look and think about God, it's going to change you And you're not even going to be aware that it is. That's the way it works. That's the way glory works. And again, it's not fast. But that's what happened with Moses. Went up, his face was shining. You know, people were saying, holy smokes, Moses, turn turn it down, will you? And he ended up putting a veil over his face. Um, We don't exercise self-control in order to know God. We know God in order to exercise self-control. That's the way it works. Um, Knowing God is the root of the issue. We get our gaze and glance mixed up. What we tend to do, we tend to focus on, I'm not very self-controlled, and I've got to really focus on being self-controlled, and God, help me be self-controlled, and we try to tinker, and, and that's upside down. What God would have us to do, now we've got to, we've got to think about our behaviors. You know what God would have us to do? Glance at them. Gaze at him and glance at our behavior because as our beliefs about God are slowly develop, it's going to change our behavior. That's what glory does. Um, the reverse, we, we gaze at our conduct and glance at God. The reverse is where the power comes from. Uh, The glory that produces the fruit listed by Peter and Paul is the glory of the new covenant. It says in 2 Corinthians, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We've looked at this verse before, but when we think of the fruit of the spirit... The spirit in the Bible, in Paul's thinking, spirit and new covenant are directly connected. 
When we think of spirit, we think of the spirit of God. It's hard to kind of get our arms around that. You know, how does the spirit evidence himself? If you want to connect with the spirit of God, how do you do that? Well, Paul would have us understand that if you want to access the influence of the spirit, what you do is you make room in your mind for the new covenant. That is what this verse says. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. If you focus on God, you're going to bless me if I obey and curse me if I disobey, that is not going to develop the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. It's going to kill it. To have fruit that is born and that's going to live, we have to understand the difference that the new covenant makes. When God says, I'm going to put my law in your mind and write it on your hearts, I'm going to cause you to know me. I'm going to cause you to know me. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my son and daughter. I'm going to be cheerful, benevolent, helios, gracious, favorable to your unrighteousnesses. That's what the new covenant says. I'm not keeping count. I don't remember your sins. And so when you think of God, I like what you said, Brian, when you talked about the orientation, you kind of think of God looking at you. And, and I, can, I had the same experience early on when I thought of God. I thought of him looking at what I'm thinking and doing and being embarrassed about it. And that's really not what God's taking notice of. That's what the new covenant indicates, that he remembers our sin no more. Um, there's different kinds of glory. That's why Paul says, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So it, it talks about different kinds of glory. You might think of this, the glory of the old covenant and the glory of the new. Think of the old glory of the old covenant. Think of the moon. You know, in an in a autumn night or in a dark night, when it's clear, the light of the moon is pretty bright. But now, when the sun comes out, this the glory of the sun eclipses the glory of the moon. It's more bright. It's more dazzling. And so that's what God's glory is like. It's like the glory of the sun. That's what God's new covenant glory is like. And when we think about... God disclosing himself to us when we're making room in our mind for what is God thinking about me? We have to understand the new covenant because that's the glory that's going to produce the fruit of the Spirit in us. It it will increase, interestingly, our self-control. We tend to think this, that I need to be very aware of God's judgment in order for me to control my behavior. A lot of places would say, you need to think of the fact that God's really angry and he's going to punish you if you do this and do that. That doesn't work with respect to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, what Paul says, that these are things that cannot be mandated by law. You cannot frighten somebody into being loving. It just 
can't work. So what God's going to do to create the fruit of the Spirit is not frighten you. He's going to father you. You're going to, he's going to develop within you the heart and attitude of a son and daughter, not a slave, because you can't legislate love. It just doesn't work. And that's, what, that's where the fruit of the Spirit, that's really what characterizes the fruit. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the new covenant. I'm going to say that again. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the new covenant because the influence of the Spirit and the new covenant in Paul's thinking are joined. You know what that means? You know, we're going to talk about the new covenant and we're going to talk about covenant promises and Brian did it today and we're going to think about other people are going to come up. We're going to think about God sympathizes with me and we're going to think from week to week, have individuals come up and talk about when they think of some of God's promises, what it means and what it means to them. Why are we going to do this? So that week after week after week, we can hear about promises reflected in the way we think about them. And it's going to focus us on them because as our mind becomes more aware of them, we're going to see more of the fruit of God's Spirit in our life. Uh, we, it, we know, I think, that Peter has, uh, when he thinks about glory, it's new covenant glory, because he ends up ending with this He says, if anyone does not have these qualities that he listed, it says he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Um, I am, I've talked about this before, really briefly. Uh, I'm nearsighted. And I, in fact, I, I had some cataract so my, my sight is I'm between glasses, so I can kind of see you. My glasses don't work anymore, and so at any rate. But you know what it's like to be nearsighted, you know, so I can, I can see things, you know, here. This is good. You know, I can see this pretty clearly, but, you know, but past that, I can't, I can't really see very clearly. And what Peter talks about is that somebody who doesn't have these things he talks about glory, goodness, self-control, when they're not evident. He gives us the reason here why. Is that the person has become nearsighted and blind because God makes us new covenant promises. He does. He says, I am helios to your unrighteousnesses and remember your sins no more. Now, early on, it's like we can see these maybe. But as time goes on, we tend to forget about them. And, and it becomes a little bit like you are. If you represent God's forgiveness, you know, I can see you a little bit better. But, uh, you know, that's what God's forgiveness becomes fuzzy. Don't let God's forgiveness become fuzzy. Because what Peter indicates, that will make or break. That makes or breaks our ability to be who God wants us to be. So, interestingly enough, self-control is going to come not as you focus on guilting or obligating or fogging yourself. You know, fog, fear, obligation, and guilt. You can make yourself do some things by fogging yourself, but... Not the fruit of the Spirit. doesn't work. Um, he talks about God's glory, and he also talks about, Peter does God's promises. Look what it says. 
through these his glory and goodness he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God gives us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. God doesn't want you to imitate him. He wants you to participate with him, in him. And that's what happens as you come to know his commitments and think about his promises over time. Your thinking about him starts to shift. The things that he discloses about himself, you start to see a little more clearly. Again, you remember what we talked about that? That's glory. And as it becomes more familiar, as you think more about what God's like from a new covenant perspective, it It starts to change you, and what it does, we end up escaping the corruption in the world caused by desires. Desires are difficult. It's very difficult for us not to gratify, not to need to gratify what we want. And that's really what self-control is about. Some of us think, well, what I need to exercise self-control is I need somebody to frighten me, and I need kind of a good spiritual punch in the nose. You know, that's what I need. You know, I need for somebody to get up there and say, you better get with it. Not for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can't frighten or force anybody into that. Not in a way that God will be okay with. Uh, the challenge of desires, is, is that's it. We, we want what we want. And as we come to know that God is for us, that he's never going to leave us or forsake us, what ends up happening? We end up developing the ability to be able to not demand as many things of ourselves, not demand as many things of others. And that's really at the heart of self-control. To much of Christianity, self-control is the how. It's the how. If you hear about what God wants you to be like, And the how is not clarified. So if I talk about this is what God wants you to be, and this is how God wants you to act, if I don't clarify the how, you will automatically insert self-control as the how. That's what we do. And self-control is not the how. Um, What is the how? Not self-control, it's spirit influence. What's the how? What Peter tells us and what Paul tells us the same thing. His glory and his promises. Gaze at who he is. Make room to think about him. Little by little by little, as your understanding of who he is begins to grow, God will create the change on the inside because that's the way glory works. And we were created to kind of draw our power and our life from the light of God's smile. Let me pray for us. Father, self-control is important. Yeah, we, we really would like to be less reactive, would like to be able to be less angry, kind of less 
fixated on getting what we want. We see that it gets in the way of our relationships, and it's, it's you know, naturally we want to be pleased, but I think we can say that we'd rather, boy, it'd be nice to be able to be more responsive rather than so reactive. And you tell us that self-control is one of the fruit of your spirit. It's not the top of the list because it doesn't make or break everything. You would have us focus on knowing you and thinking about you and thinking about your glory, your new covenant glory and your promises, because as we focus there, then self-control will, will be produced and it will gradually become more and more evident because it's glory that produces self-control. It's promises that develop self-control. I pray that you would help us to get our gaze and glance properly aligned, that we would gaze at you and glance at our behavior so that we would develop the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, self-control. Jesus' name, amen.